Great. Well, we're going to read tonight another of those Christmas passages from the first chapter of John's Gospel. So we're going to read John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 18. And uh, let's read some of them right now. So John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men would believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory, is of the, uh, glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, This was he of whom I have said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. That's our passage. <coughs> and as I say, it's another of the Christmas passages, which uh, ever since they invented the service of nine lessons and carols back at the start of the 20th century, has been built into carol services uh, all over the, the world through the years. And yet, I guess this must be one of the most difficult readings for people who only come to carol services to hear. In the beginning was the Word. What does that actually mean? And as you carry on listening, eventually, oh, oh, they're talking about Jesus. Okay, well, why don't they say in the beginning was Jesus? And uh, I, I think to understand that is to understand what John's really trying to do in his gospel. <laughs> You see, each of the four Gospels, as you probably know, present Jesus from a slightly different point of view. Not contradicting one another, but fitting together. Matthew is a person who tries to put Jesus into perspective as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies, all of the, 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 the uh, prophecies that talk about a coming son of David who will set everything right. And so Matthew's Gospel starts with a genealogy, tracing Jesus' family history back. Mark plunges you right into action. You don't see anything about Christmas, about Jesus' birth or childhood or anything like that. He's the servant of God from the word go. And so he's in service, he's, he's acting. And so if Matthew's presenting Jesus as God's king, Mark's presenting Jesus as God's servant. Luke, well, it's the most human of the Gospels, isn't it? 
And so it's the, it again gives you the Christmas story and we saw some of that this morning and you get very close to some of the characters involved. You sympathise with Zechariah and Elizabeth, you feel close to Mary and Joseph and uh, it's a very human gospel. There are more women and children in Luke than there are in any of the other gospels and I think what Luke is trying to do is to present Jesus as the perfect man. Well that only leaves John, writing a few years later, to fill in the fourth side of the picture. I think what he wants to do is, is, is deeper than any of those in some ways. What he wants to do is to present Jesus as God himself in human flesh. All of them say that, but John, I think, goes a little bit deeper. And this word, the word, is an important part of it. Right from the word go, John is tackling one of the most basic philosophical issues that the Greeks ever thought about. Take, for example, uh, this Heraclitus who uh, was a philosopher who lived in Ephesus 500 years before John was there and probably wrote his gospel from there. So 500 years before John, there was one of the first uh, Greek philosophers who was using this phrase, the word. And it wasn't his invention because people had been using it before his time. And uh, they'd used it to say, the word is the principle that holds everything together in our world. When you look at the world, you see all sorts of different things going on. Things being born, things dying, things changing and multiplying all over the place. What holds it all together? There has to be one central principle. And Heraclitus said, there has to be a universal principle of reason that makes the whole universe work, knit together and make sense. And he said, let's call it the Logos. So this is where this word, the word, comes from. Now Heraclitus was somebody who believed that the world was all about change. And he said this, life is always about change. You never step into the same river twice. That's one of his famous sayings, you know. Whenever you step into the river, the water is flooded on a bit. You know, even if you jump in once, then out and jump in again a split second later. It's different water that you're jumping into because it's constantly changing as it, it goes downstream. But uh, if life is all about change, and Heraclitus was very big on that point, he said, the logos can't be, can it? If it's the same down through the ages, if it's been the same from creation, the logos has to be unchanging. It's all very confusing. And so over the next 500 years, until John came along, philosophers argued about, what is this thing, the logos? What lies behind creation? Did it start it all off? Is it God or, or was it made by God? What is the logos? And uh, in John's day, they were still arguing in Ephesus. If you have a good philosophical argument, you keep it going for 500 years. And uh, they were still arguing. And in John's day, there was somebody called Corinthus who was around, who claimed to be a Christian, but wasn't really. And Corinthus was, uh, was somebody who used this phrase, the word, a lot. And Corinthus, uh, John apparently didn't like him very much. And we don't hear this from John himself, but uh, some of his own disciples have left their memories of John behind. And uh, there's a story about how he was taken into the baths in, in Ephesus one day, the public baths. He was going to have a bath. And as he got there, he found that Corinthus, with some of his acolytes and disciples, had walked in as well. And John apparently left the bath without having a wash because he said, let us fly even, lest even the bathhouse fall down because Corinthus, enemy of the truth, is inside. He really didn't like what Corinthus stood for. Why was he so determined to separate himself from Corinthus and wouldn't even have a wash alongside him? Well, it's because of what Corinthus was saying which is perhaps the opposite of John chapter 1. This is Corinthus, a nice-looking lad, and uh, he, he had things like this. First of all, the world was created not by God, but by what he called a demiurge. <laughs> That's a kind of machine that God's got started, something with limited creative powers, and the demiurge uh, produces the world. God has nothing to do with creation. 
In fact, the demiurge is unaware of God. It's not sure that there even is a God because it's just a blind principle at work in nature. And uh, he would say, too, if we really want to be friends with God, we have to keep the whole Jewish law. Corinthus claimed to be a Christian, but he was a Judaistic Christian. He said, not the whole Old Testament law is binding on you. The lot, the feasts, the, the, the dietary restrictions, uh, circumcision, the lot. If you want to please God, you do the things that he said in the Old Testament. He also said that Jesus was just the natural son of Joseph and Mary. Virgin birth, oh, forget it, nothing like that ever happened. Jesus was just a normal human being, and in fact, he wasn't the son of God. The, the Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism, and then it left when Jesus was crucified. So Jesus was a, just an ordinary, run-of-the-mill human being until his baptism by John the Baptist. And then the Christ Spirit came upon him, and it was there so that he could do miracles and teach lots of truths and stuff like that. But as soon as crucifixion came along, the Christ Spirit said, no thank you very much, went back to heaven and let Jesus die as a human being. Mind you, Jesus will be raised again at the end of the world with everybody else because he was a human being. And the final thing that he said was, oh, I got all of this from an angel, by the way. <laughs> John did not really believe this. He didn't think Corinthus was talking to any angels. He thought he got the whole thing completely wrong. And that, I think, is why John starts off his gospel by tackling head on all of those ideas of Corinthus, that the world was created by something other than God, that this thing wasn't even sure if there was a God because it wasn't in contact with him, that Jesus was a normal human being on whom some sort of spirit came temporarily. And John wants to say, none of this is true. So he talks about five things, it seems to me, in this passage, and I'll just go through them uh, quite quickly here tonight, and we'll still manage to see a little bit of uh, the football if you want to. So the identity of the word, it seems to me, is the first thing he's talking about, and this is in verses 1 to 5. He says, first of all, the word has always been there. In the beginning was the word. It was there right from the start, from the first moment of creation. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Just as God has always been there from the beginning, so the word, Jesus, was there with him. And that's because he is actually God himself. And John is spelling out in no uncertain terms, this is who Jesus is. He was in human form. He was a real human being. He uh, went through all of the, 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 the same physical things that we go through living on this planet. He wasn't some kind of hologram. But on the other hand, he was also God. He had a divine nature. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses obviously try to uh, change this verse a bit because it doesn't fit with their theology, and they, they would translate it in the New World translation. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. <laughs> and they say, well, sometimes, you know, specially sensitive spiritual people or kings of Israel or people who are high in the spiritual hierarchy are called gods as a sort of courtesy title, and that's all it means. No, no way. You cannot bring in the word a to this verse, he was a God, where it doesn't appear. And it's just a mistranslation of the Greek. What John clearly says, bluntly and plain, plain, plentifully obviously, is he was God. And so the world was created not by a demiurge, but by somebody who was actually God himself. He created everything. He was responsible for every bit of what we see. It's not that God did some bits and Jesus did other bits. It's not that the demiurge was responsible for half of it and Jesus did 50% of the work. Not that. He was responsible for everything. Without him was nothing made that was made. And the fourth thing he says about the identity of the word is that his life lights up our lives. In him was life. And his life was the light of human beings. And whenever human beings see a purpose in living, 
Whenever they understand something, the light that's dawned on them comes from the life of God himself. Whenever human beings enjoy something, and the, the, the sky seems to grow bright around them, the light that they see on the horizon is the life of God himself coming to us through Jesus. And Jesus Christ is the one whose life, whose eternal existence, brings light into human life. Without him, there is no light. We're stumbling in the darkness. We can see no point. We can see no purpose. We can go nowhere in our lives. But when Jesus Christ brings light into our lives, then the light of men comes from the life of God himself. So that's the first thing, the identity of the word. But then he goes on to talk about the way the word was introduced. And this is verses 6 to 8. There was a man, uh, came a man who was sent from God and his name was John. Now we don't know, but we suspect very strongly that John, who's writing this, too many Johns around, I'm talking and, mm, never mind. So John will tell you about John talking about John at this point. Okay, uh, John the Baptist was clearly very important to John, the writer of this passage. Because um, we believe that John has written himself into the gospel and left his name out of it. We think he's one of these two disciples of John the Baptist that you read about further later on in John chapter 1. And John sees Jesus passing by and says, look, guys, this is who we've been waiting for. Behold, this is the Lamb of God. And immediately those two disciples turn away from John and say to Jesus, can we come and have a look? Can we just see what you're all about? Can we check you out? And they do that because John has been preparing them for this moment. That's John the Baptist. John. And he's been preparing them for it because he's, he said quite clearly all the way through, listen, it's not about me. It's about the one who's coming. The one, the latchet of whose shoe I'm not worthy to unloose. Somebody who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's much, much more important than me. I can baptize in water. It's a baptism for repentance. I can help you find a way of saying that you're sorry to God and uh, uh, reach out to him and, 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 and reach out in hope that he's going to accept you and do something for you. But he can bring the whole process to completion. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He'll bring the life of God into your life. And he'll baptize you with Father. He'll change you. You'll be a new creation as you've never been before. He can do that. I can't. And so what John says here about John, John the writer of this passage, says about John the Baptist, is that John the Baptist was sent from God. He was part of the plan. It wasn't just that Jesus parachuted into the world and started doing miracles. No, he was prepared for. And God sent John the Baptist to prepare the ground so that people would have their consciences awakened by John. And they'd be ready to listen to what Jesus had to say. He was sent from God, but, says John, the writer of this passage, John the Baptist was only a witness. That's all he was. Nothing more than that. There's nothing special or divine about John the Baptist apart from his calling, his commission, and the gifts that God gave him. He wasn't God himself. No way should anybody believe that. And John is probably writing this at a time when there are still some disciples of John the Baptist hanging around the ancient world. Do you remember when Paul first went to Ephesus, the city where John is writing this, and where he'd been in the church for several years, the first people that uh, Paul came, came across when he came to Ephesus were a bunch of disciples of John the Baptist. And they, they, they didn't know the full end of the story and what John was looking forward to. And uh, Paul had to tell them all about Jesus because he'd never heard. So it's possible that there are still people around in Ephesus or other places who think that John the Baptist is the greatest thing since sliced bread. 
And John wants to say, no, 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 no. He was the second greatest thing since sliced bread. There is something else that's appeared since. And so John is only a witness. Now, this word witness is an important word in John's gospel. It's the, it's the word from which we get martyr, M-A-R-T-Y-R, in, in, in English. And it doesn't mean necessarily somebody who suffers for his faith. Well, it did come to mean that in the days of the early church. And uh, witnesses to Jesus in those days of persecution came to be called martyrs, and that's how we use the word nowadays. But this word witness is one that John uses again and again through his gospel. You find witness, testify, that word ringing through the gospel 14 different times. And uh, it's interesting the way it's distributed because most of it's in the first eight chapters. And that's when it's presenting Jesus. You see, what, G what John is trying to do is present evidence that Jesus really is who John claims he, he was, the Son of God. And so he presents all of that evidence. And when you read on chapter 8, and it all starts to get uh, uh, a little bit less hopeful for Jesus, and the cross approaches, and you go through the cross, the, 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 the resurrection, that word disappears. And then at the end, you see it twice more. And those last two chapters, it's, it's applied to John himself. And he says, I can witness, first of all, that the blood and water that flowed down from, from Jesus' side were separated out. He was really dead. This man who came alive again, he really did die. He didn't just faint on the cross. He died. He gave his life so that you could be forgiven. And he gave his life finally and fully so that the life he came back with was not a continuation of his previous life. It was triumphing over death, hell, and the grave completely. I can testify to that. And then in the final chapter, he talks about the whole story and says, listen, this is the one who can testify to these things, and he testifies that these things are true. So witness matters an awful lot to John. And when he says that John the Baptist was only a witness, he's trying to say he was nothing special like God himself, but he was doing an important job. Because God is a God who doesn't just speak out of thin air. He gives us evidence. He gives us proofs that he's doing what he's doing. And John was one of those members. And the reason that he was sent, says John, the writer, is that he was sent to awaken faith in people. He came for a witness, to bear witness to the truth, so that through him all men might believe. That's the point. Witnesses are not just there to give us something that you could weigh up and say, well, it might be true or it might not. The, it, it's, it, the, the witness is given so that we have enough evidence to take a jump into the unknown and say, Lord, I don't know if you really are there or not, but it looks like you are. And so I commit my life to you, and I'll be your follower from here on in. So that was the introduction to the word, through John the Baptist. And then John goes on to talk about the impact the word had when he actually came. Because all God had prepared the way, although this had been planned before the foundation of the world, that did not mean it was all plain sailing when Jesus arrived. And so John says, listen, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So there was a split in the world's response. First of all, Jesus was unrecognized by the very world he had created. And that's because of the sinfulness of human beings, which had made them incapable of recognizing the creator when he came along. And he came to his own. He came to the Jewish people. The people who'd been God's special people down through the centuries. The people on whom all the pr promises of God had rested. The people who were waiting and looking, officially, 
for God's final solution, the son of David, the, the king, the one who would sit on the throne of David forever and ever, have an everlasting kingdom and dominion, and his own did not receive him. That word receive is an interesting one. It comes up several times here in, in these few verses, and it means to take hold of something for yourself, to choose something to take with you. When it says, in, for instance, in the story of Jesus several times, and Jesus chose Peter, James, and John and went with them, or Jesus took the twelve with him. It's that word that's used. It means to pick up and make your own. <laughs> and so to pick up Jesus and make him your own is something the world, even his own people, weren't prepared to do. But John goes on to say, but as many as did receive him, as many as welcomed him, picked him up and made him their own, they are the ones to whom God did something special. They received him and they believed on him. They trusted him. They said, okay, maybe you are the son of God. This sounds crazy, but we're prepared to believe it. And what happened? God uh, gave them the power to become the children of God. Well, that's the way the authorised version translated it, isn't it? God didn't give us power to change ourselves. No, he gave us the authority to become children of God. He opened the way. He made it possible. But where does the power come from? Well, the verse tells us that as well. The, he gave them the right, the authority to become children of God. And these were children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Not people born in a normal way. Not through sexual desire, not through biological processes. That first phrase, which it translates here, children born not of natural descent. Actually, in Greek, it says children born not of bloods, which is strange. But actually, in those days, they thought that the blood in the human system had a lot to do with the formation of a baby in the mother's womb. So blood was very important in bringing the baby together. Well, it was, but not in the way they thought in those days. However, that's what John's getting at. It wasn't through physical human processes. It wasn't through sexual attraction. It wasn't through anything like that. It wasn't through the decision of a family. We'll have another baby. It was because of God. That's the way that anybody becomes a Christian, through something that God does to them. He gives them the authority to become his children, and then he brings the Holy Spirit into their life, and they're changed. And if anybody is in Christ... He is a brand new creation. So that's what uh, uh, John's talks about there. The impact of the word is two ways. He's unrecognized by the world as a whole, but as many as received him, anybody who was willing to open their heart and, and invite him in, he was given the authority or she was given the authority to become the children of God by the power of God working in them. And so there are two more things to look at here. One is the arrival of the word. And this is where you, you get to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. The glory is of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, that's a really interesting word. John always chooses his words with great care. And uh, that's why he's, he's a delight to look at uh, in Greek, because the words all mean something. There's hardly anything that's, that's not distilled and refined, so that it means something special. And this word, dwelt among us, or made his dwelling among us, is one of the words. Because it's not the word you would use for buying a house in painting and living there for 50, 60 years. It's the word you would use for a camping holiday. <laughs> the word came and made his temporary dwelling among us. He really belonged in heaven. He belonged in the brightness of glory, but he came here and he lived here for a bit at one of us. That doesn't mean he's ever ceased to be one of us, 
but he was here on a camping basis. And some translations translate this, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Because the, the reason John's using this word is because he wants to give the pictures of the tabernacle in the wilderness, the tent of meeting, which was the presence of God in the midst of his people as the children of Israel moved through the desert and into the promised land. And just as that was always right there in the middle of the camp, with all of the tribes camped around it, so Jesus is right there in the middle of the life of this world. And he's right there with the people who've received and accepted him to be a living presence in their lives forever afterwards. The word tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. And most Bible scholars make the obvious point that, yeah, this is exactly what the tabernacle was there for. To show God's glory to the Israelites as they camped around it. Do you remember the last chapter of Exodus? That's when the tabernacle is all set up for the very first time. Every curtain ring, every brass pole is in place. And then a cloud comes down over the tent of meeting. And Moses can't go in. Can't go inside because the glory of the Lord has taken possession of the inside. And that's the, the picture that John is, is, is evoking here. And he's saying, look, just as thousands of years ago, in the days of Moses, God came down to be with ordinary human people, failing, sinful, uh, backsliding human beings. So God's Son, Jesus, the Word, has come into our life and uh, shared it with us. So he, he, he became flesh, he camped among us, and his glory showed out. We saw his glory. What did his glory consist of? John mentioned three things here. The glory of the unique Son of God, the one and only who came from the Father. And uh, sometimes people look at uh, modern translations and say the glory of the one and only. I thought it was the glory of the only begotten Son of God. They're watering down the Bible. Well, not really. It's just we know a little bit more about Greek than we did a few hundred years ago. See, there's a Greek word, monogenes, which people used to think, well, the mono bit is easy, isn't it? That means solo. That means on your own, right? And genes, that obviously comes from genetic genitals and things like that. It's a word about give birth to something. And so monogenes, yes, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, only begotten son of God. Jesus was God's son given birth to in a very unique kind of a way. But that's not actually what the word does mean. We know that monogenes means mono means only, but genes comes from the word that gives us things like gender and that, that, that kind of word. And it means one of a kind. And so one and only just about sums it up. And so Jesus is the one and only Son of God. He's absolutely unique. There is nobody who will ever replace him. There has never been anybody like him. And we saw the glory, says John, not of a prophet, not of a messenger. We've seen plenty of them down through the centuries. God keeps sending them along, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, doesn't it? And at different times, in lots of different ways, God has sent prophets and seers and messengers and writers and all kinds of folks who've come with something from him. But only one person in the whole of the world's history has come with the fullness of God to show us, and that is Jesus. And so as you look at Jesus, as you travel around with him, as you see what he does, you, look, you watch the miracles, you hear the wisdom, you begin to, to realize that this man is absolutely sinless. He's never done anything wrong in the whole of his life. He's dedicated to one purpose, and that is the glory of God. And you start saying, this is somebody we've never seen before. He's monogenes. He's one of a kind. This is the glory of the one and only Son of God.
How do you know it's the Son of God? John mentions two more things. Full of grace. (laughs) Jesus represents the character of God. And just as God is a gracious God who loves his people and wants his people to come back to him and does good to his people that they don't deserve, because grace is undeserved favor, isn't it? That's the definition of the word. So Jesus is constantly doing things people don't expect and, and, and don't deserve. But the love of God just pours out of him to people uh, as he meets them. And John's going to portray in the next few chapters how Jesus meets all sorts of unlikely people. Nicodemus, uh, leader of the Jews, who isn't convinced that uh, he's, he's heading towards God's future plan for his existence. The, the woman sitting by the well in Samaria through five husbands and living with somebody else. and All sorts of people who from all of our different perspectives, relate to Jesus and find in him a warmth and a love and an affection and a wisdom that they've never seen anywhere else. And they begin to realise this is not a human being, just. He's human, all right. He's warm. He understands me. But at the same time, this is the glory of the Son of God, full of grace and full of truth. And what Jesus does uh, in John's Gospel is, is to bring to life the Old Testament scriptures that people are struggling to understand. And they all center in him. And he shows how he has become the fulfillment of all that the prophets were pointing towards. And Jesus makes sense of the Bible in a way that nobody else has ever done. There's um, a story, I've never been able to track it down properly, but it's a good one, about uh, a time when at the end of the First World War, the Allied forces uh, what, it came forward uh, over what had been the German trenches and they came to a, a little town that had been stuck in the middle of no man's land. It had been bombed almost to non-existence. It had been shot at, the bullet holes were everywhere. None of the buildings were intact any longer, apart from one. And that was a little chapel in the centre of the small town. And when the first British soldiers went in there, they couldn't believe it because it wasn't like any chapel they'd seen before. For a start, it was circular. And there weren't seats. Around the edge of it, on the inside, there were lots of little plinths for statues. And on each of those plinths, there was a a statue of an old Testament hero. There was Moses. There was Daniel. There was David. There was Solomon. There were all the prophets, Micah, Zephaniah, the lot. And a host of statues all the way around, all looking in towards the centre. (laughs) And there in the centre of the chapel... On a plinth, standing by itself, was a figure of Jesus Christ. And that chapel was a kind of image in stone, if you like, of the Old Testament. All of the heroes of the Old Testament looking in one direction, in towards the centre, at Jesus, the Son of God himself. And that's what John's saying. He was full of truth. He put all of that stuff together. And we saw that they were all pointing in the same direction. Uh, Micah, when he spoke about the one who was coming from Bethlehem. Isaiah, who spoke about the one who was going to bring peace to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And all of the other prophets and uh, spokesmen of the, the, the Old Testament, they were pointing towards one figure, and that was Jesus. He made sense in a way that nobody had ever made sense before. And so that brings us on to the final bit, doesn't it? The importance of the word. John testifies concerning him, says, uh, says uh, on the writer in verse 15 he cries out saying this is he of whom of this was he of whom i said he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me 
And he's saying John was only a witness. John led people to the point where they could recognize Jesus for themselves. That was all he came to do. Jesus was far, far greater. So Jesus surpasses John. And he goes on to say, The law, verse 17, was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, not only does Jesus surpass John the Baptist, Jesus surpasses Moses as well. And uh, the two of them, uh, two of the greatest heroes that the Jews of John's day had, are all far outstripped by the glory and the wonder and the importance of Jesus himself. Why? Well, John tells us. He surpasses John because, uh, as John says, he was before me. And uh, John says, yep, that's right. And from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. That was something John the Baptist never did. John the Baptist made people feel uncomfortable. <laughs> he brought people to repentance. And people with a guilty conscience streamed out of the cities and the towns and came down to the Jordan where John was baptizing. I said, please help us get rid of this feeling of guilt that we've got. Help get us right with God. And John couldn't do that. All he could do was baptize them for the forgiveness of sins so that they could beg God to forgive the sins that they were now acknowledging. They were taking a step in the right direction, but it still didn't bring God into their lives. And what Jesus has done is so far greater because by dying on the cross, Jesus made it possible for us to receive complete and total forgiveness for our sins and to live a new life with him at the center of it. And that new life brings us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. John did not bring much grace. It was mainly condemnation, very useful condemnation. It was a first step in coming back. Repentance is a first step in finding God once again. But it didn't bring much grace into our lives. Jesus has brought us grace upon grace, says John. Grace that we didn't deserve. Surpass Moses? Well, he says the law was given through Moses. Moses was good at telling us what we ought to do, how we ought to behave. He gave us the revelation of what God expected from a people who were called by his name. He gave us a, a way of living, organizing a nation, uh, living next door to your neighbor, bringing up your family, which was pretty detailed. And all of these things were promises that Moses got us to make to God. He got us in a position where we were God's people and we were prepared and promising to do what God said. But we didn't do it. And what does Moses do after that? Moses can't do anything. Moses simply brought the law. <laughs> but Jesus surpassed Moses. How? Because grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And John says, no one has ever seen God. But God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Moses had a day when he said to God, Will you show me your glory? And God said, Well, come up the mountain and I'll show you my hindquarters. <laughs> what he was saying is, You can't see God full on and live. Moses, you're just another sinful human being. You may be the most important human being for my purposes on the earth at this particular point in time. You may be meeting with me up on Mount Sinai and hearing things that no other human being is, is hearing. You may be going down the hill with your face shining so that other people think, oh, sunglasses, bring in my sunglasses. That does not make you able to look on me. And so Moses was able to go up the hill and God passed before him. But what John says is technically quite right. Nobody has ever seen God. But then he says, but God, the one and only, we know who he is, the word, Jesus, God the one and only who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus not only has been in the presence of God 
from eternity, but also has made God known to us. And he's brought into our lives the, 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 the grace and the truth that Moses could never bring in. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses. And so although Moses and John the Baptist were great people, a tremendous, indispensable part of God's plan for the world, fantastic servants of God that you always have to honour and respect, nonetheless, there is somebody greater, says John, and he was the word. Corinthus thinks we still have to keep all the Mosaic law in order to get right with God and get into heaven. He's wrong, because Jesus Christ the Word himself, who created everything, who's been with the Father since the beginning, has brought into the world a knowledge of God and made him known so that we can be children of God with the right to change by the Holy Spirit into something different. And that really is much, much more important. So that's it, basically. I just uh, wanted to finish with, with quoting a couple of verses of a Christmas carol we sometimes sing, which goes back just as far as the late 1930s. It was written in the days of the Boxer Rebellion in China. No, not the Boxer Rebellion, it was 19th century. The Communist Rebellion in China, when lots of Westerners were being killed by the Communist insurgents. And there were, in those days, some Christian missionaries who suffered. You've probably heard at some point the story of John and Betty Stamm. In fact, I think I may have mentioned it on a Sunday morning at some point. They were a couple, he was 27 and she was 28, who were living in a small town in China where they were loved because they'd come in as missionaries to give both grace and truth as much as they possibly could to the people that they came into contact with. But the communist insurgents simply saw them as agents of capitalism, people who represented the corrupt Western world. And so uh, they stayed in the town where they were, not knowing whether they should leave or go, until one night the, the door was burst open and uh, communist soldiers marched into the front room. They offered them tea, but the communists weren't interested. Uh, they, they, they started to beat them and tie them up, and they took them on a long march, together with the new baby, who wasn't very old at that point. And uh, in fact, when they started off down the street with these, these people, uh, a, 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 a local shopkeeper uh, was so horrified at what they were doing, taking this young man and wife and baby on a march with them. He came out of the shop and remonstrated with the communists and said, look, this is not the way to build a new China by oppressing innocent people and a baby. And he said, you want to save a Western baby? You must be a Christian like them. And so they killed him on the spot. And John and Betty Stam were marched for 12 hours to another town where the next day he was stabbed to death in front of his wife and then he chopped her head off. And the, just before she died, she'd managed to conceal the baby in a, a, a kind of onesie blanket affair that she had with her together with a $10 note, just praying and hoping that someone would find the baby and get her to safety. Well, that little girl is still alive in, in, in America today, to cut a long story short. But there was a man in China uh, who worked for the China Inland Mission at that point called Frank Houghton. And he was responsible for the upkeep of some of the missionaries. And he decided that he had to leave the safety of Hong Kong, where he was, and travel across the mountains to some of these lonely missionary outposts and just see what help he could offer to missionaries who were in situations. And he found lots of people who were suffering the same kind of perils as the standard. And as he came back across the hills, he started thinking of an old carol tune he'd heard in the past, the tune of a French carol from the Middle Ages. And words started forming in his mind. 
And uh, some of the words are these. Thou who art God, beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. Stooping so low, but sinners raising heavenwards by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God, beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. And as he thought of the missionaries he'd met and the situations that they they, they were in, he kept thinking, it's love. That's what drove them out. The love of God that through the coming of Jesus has gripped their hearts and made them different. And so the last verse of the carol goes like this. Thou who art love beyond all telling, Saviour and King, we worship thee. Emmanuel within us dwelling, make us what thou wouldst have us be. Thou who art love beyond all telling, Saviour and King, we worship thee. May that be our prayer this Christmas. Make us what thou wouldst have us be. Let's pray for a second now and then Richard will come and finish. Heavenly Father, as we've uh, scampered through a very important section of scripture and just, just pick one or two things out of it, we pray that what's important for us to remember this Christmas will be stamped in our hearts and minds. And use the whole thing, Father, as we see the grandeur of the picture that John draws here compared to the inanities of Corinthus and other pop philosophers like that. Help us to identify with that story and celebrate it afresh. Worship you as a result this Christmas and keep praying that prayer. Emmanuel, within us dwelling, make us what thou wouldst have us be. We ask it not just for Christmas, but for the rest of our lives. Amen.